like, yep, get it done. So I appreciate that team so much. And uh, man, how good are they at making everything happen for us? Uh, and you would not believe just how difficult it is to make a video play uh, on a Sunday morning, but they do it well. Amen. Good times for FFM. We've asked the question over the last uh, month and a half. Well, as we've been talking about renewing our vision and, and uh, thinking about who we are and what God is doing with us, our, our purpose, our vision, and those things. And one of the big questions was, what are we going to do with the goodness of God? And I hope that that continues to just, sh- just meditate in your heart and in your life as uh, David and Elaine are here to even add to some of that over the next few weeks. So uh, we're, we're incredibly blessed by them. I want you to give the Lord and David a hand as he comes. Amen. Miss Elaine, will you just stand up and wave to everyone? There's Miss Elaine. Now, um, she talks as funny as I do, so her and I are kindred spirits. Amen. And um, listen, I cannot tell you, many of you know, most of you may, some of you don't. Uh, these two have been champions for Firm Foundation Ministry since the beginning. And they have believed in us the whole way and never wavered. Uh, they have walked with this leadership team through some very uh, critical times. And always been a source of strength and light and blessing to us. Uh, you know, and uh, to Lisa and I personally, Dave and Elaine, have just come in and loved us and, and, and encouraged us in ways that some people can't take encouragement. And, and encouraged us in ways that other people love to receive encouragement. And um, I, I remember when Camden passed away and um, those things. And David Elaine, I called David and he's like, I'm on my way already. And uh, so they've always been here for us, our families, our churches. Many of you have personal connections to them. If you don't, we want to make sure you do. Um, And uh, this is a part of who we are. And I hope you will receive from uh, Dave and Elaine while they're here for the next few months, just like Lisa and I do and our whole eldership team does, as uh, spiritual fathers and moms in our lives to just say, hey, Keep going. So, amen. Let's pray for David. And I, I'm going I'm to make sure you got power. You got power here? You got power? I, you were God's man of power for the hour. So, you know, make sure you're turned on there. Let's pray. Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for your heart towards us through David and Elaine, God. Thank you that they are willing vessels. That, Lord, each year they take time uh, away from their family and travel to come, to be with us. And Lord, our hearts are grateful for what you use them uh, to do and encourage us in our midst. Lord, we, we want you to bless them while they're here, God. We want you to encourage them. We want you to, to anoint them, God. We want your favor on them, Lord. As we just receive them, and uh, God, we ask that as you do, today even, that David's thought be yours, his words be yours, that we, your people, might be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. It's been 20 years since we first came to, you know, unbelievable, really. And uh, it got kicked off with a bang, didn't it? (laughs) Those that were here, Mike and Donna, Doug and Nancy and a few others. It's amazing. Um, I was uh, talking uh, a couple weeks ago with a young pastor in Los Angeles that we're working with quite a lot. He's a remarkable young man, planted several churches already. He's only 32 years old. And uh, uh, I, I do a podcast with him, among other things. 
uh, in which we talk about doctrine and teaching. And uh, I said, well, when I started, I said, how long will this do you want each session to be? And I'm thinking, you know, 30 minutes, about as much as most people can take. And he said, oh, no, an hour and a half. I said, an hour and a half? He said, yeah, no, I'm serious about this. And you know, one of the interesting things that all the churches that we're involved in, and and they're increasing in number, um, there's two things that are common in them. Uh, One is they're full of young people. Uh, A lot of them, they're desperate for anyone over 35 to be spiritual mother and father. And they're hungry for the Word of God. And they don't want to sit there and get a few platitudes for 20 minutes that temporarily make them feel good. And then, you know, as soon as they leave, there was no substance to it. And so, I, he, he's, he said to me, well, I said to him, well, I'll be recording from there uh, next week when we do the podcast. And he said, oh, well, I'll, uh, that's good. And then, you know, I'll talk to you when you, you get home the week after that. I said, oh, no, we'll be there till the middle of March. And he said, what? He said, you're going to one church to the middle of March? And I said, ah, but this is a special church. (laughs) He said, really? It must be. So, and it is. (laughs) I want to uh, talk to you this morning uh, from Mark chapter 9 and verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd said, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out and they couldn't. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It's often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. Most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. Aren't you glad that when you were dead, Jesus took you by the hand and lifted you up? If there's anybody in this room this morning uh, or upstairs or online and Jesus has never taken you by the hand and lifted you up, do not leave this place this morning without talking to somebody about how to know Jesus Christ personally in your life. And Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he'd entered his house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? (laughs) It's interesting, they didn't ask him publicly. They were too embarrassed. (coughs) And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything 
but prayer. Now, this passage tells the story of a desperate father who brought his demonized son to Jesus for deliverance. But when he came, Jesus wasn't there. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John having an encounter with Moses and Elijah. And so, the man, failing to find Jesus, uh, looked to the next best thing, which was the disciples. But their efforts came to nothing. And so, as Jesus came down the mountain, the man met him with his desperate plea. And the story that unfolds tells of the encounter of this man and his son with Jesus. And although Jesus is the healer, and the boy is the one who got healed or delivered, the central character in this story really is the father. The man asked Jesus to help if he could. Jesus rebuked the man for his tentativeness, and he said, all things are possible for one who believes. And then the desperate dad cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus rebukes the spirit, and the boy's set free. Well, let's stop for a moment. In my opinion, what this man says is one of the most helpful and encouraging statements in the entire Bible. Is there any one of us here this morning who can't identify with his cry? The faith movement taught us that it's our responsibility to manufacture total certainty in our head if we want to see God do anything in our lives. It's all up to us. Believe it hard enough and it'll happen. But if you doubt, it won't happen. And then our own guilty conscience reinforces this. If God doesn't answer my prayers, there's something wrong with me. If you've ever felt like that, then this story is for you. But let me clarify one thing to begin with about the father and his unbelief. His unbelief was not directed toward who Jesus was. His unbelief was directed toward what Jesus could do. Now, there's a difference. His unbelief was not directed to who Jesus was. Same as we often come to Jesus. We don't doubt who He is but our unbelief is directed toward what Jesus could do. We don't battle with unbelief about who Jesus is. In Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that's the kind of faith that I'm talking about. We believe who Jesus is. We don't doubt He's the Son of God. We don't doubt He's our Savior. And like I said a few minutes ago, if you do doubt about that, then please come talk to somebody before you leave, and we can help you. But we who are Christians know who Jesus is. But our struggle is always, isn't it, what will Jesus do? Especially in the middle of a crisis. We're having those all the time. Just in the worship this morning, a dear elderly saint messaged me from England, please pray for me, I'm in the emergency department with a heart, serious heart issue. And I stopped for a minute and worship and prayed for her. Wait, there's always crises going on amongst us. Maybe you're in one this morning. That's when we desperately need the help that only Jesus can give. And that's the position this man was in. But here's the great message of this story. In spite of the fact 
The man asked Jesus to help his unbelief. There were four things in his heart which testified to the genuineness of his faith, even in the midst of his doubts. And for you and me who believe, but also struggle with unbelief, that's a great comfort. Because if we have these four things that I'm going to unfold, even if we struggle with unbelief, like the desperate father, God will help us. He will help you. And here's the first thing about this man. He came in a motivation that was birthed by desperation. He was desperate for God. Who knows how long he'd waited? Now, the Oxford English Dictionary defines desperate this way. Reckless from despair. Violent. Lawless. Staking all on a small chance. He was desperate. He was reckless. Sometimes we don't come to God until we're reckless. Sometimes we need to be a little more reckless in our coming to God. Sometimes we need to be shaken out of our complacency. We, we're, we're fine as long as we can control the situation. But it's great to go to God while you're still in a place where you think you can do it, but actually you can't because the moment is going to come when you can't do it and then you're in trouble. He was reckless. And only Jesus would do, nobody else. Our faith is weak because complacency rules our agenda. And we wouldn't really look at it this way, but we're placing our faith in things other than Jesus. Practically. I don't mean theologically. I mean, you believe in Jesus, you trust Him as your Savior, but you can put your faith in money or abilities or relationships or any one of those things, and that's what you're relying on in your daily life. You're complacent. We don't have because we don't ask, James tells us. We're not desperate for God. Why is it we wait until every other option fails? Uh, maybe I'm only speaking to myself here. I'm just being honest. Why is it we wait until every other option fails before we come to Jesus? Jesus measured the strength of this man's faith not by the doubts that he still had in his mind, but by his willingness, as shown in his actions, to stake everything he had on Christ. I'm so encouraged by that. That even if I've messed up, even if I've left it to the last minute, even if I've been complacent, if I go to God in my desperation, Jesus is not condemning me. He's not taking count of, well, you know, David, <coughs> you should have done this a month ago, or you should have done this six months ago, or you should have done this or that. He just says, I, here I am for you. That's who he is. His patience is so great. His love is even greater. So he came in motivation. He was motivated. His motivation was birthed in desperation. He came in a desperately motivated that's the first point that I want to make. And at the end, I'm going to get Lisa to put these four points up, and you can write them down if you want. Second, he came in worship. We learn that not from, uh, from this scripture in chapter Mark, but there's a par parallel account of the same story in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17, and it adds a detail 
that when Jesus arrived on the scene, the first thing this man did was he fell down before him. He knelt in an act of worship. So he came in motive, desperate motivation, but secondly, he came in worship. He, he came knowing ultimately that Jesus had the answers. He came knowing that Jesus came from God. Maybe he didn't understand the entire dimensions of who Jesus was. This was, uh, you know, in the course of Jesus' earthly ministry before the cross and the resurrection and so on. Maybe he didn't understand the entirety of it, but he understood enough. I'm so glad that I don't have to understand the entirety of the gospel or of the Bible before Jesus meets me in my desperation. You, you, some, some of the greatest prayers that are answered are by people that are young believers. They don't hardly know anything, but they know, know enough to come to God and worship, and He meets them. So, instinctively, He took a posture of worship recognizing that God had given Jesus a place of authority in his life that required him to bow down before him. And so he fell on his knees and he called him Lord. In spite of his desperate situation, he didn't come in anger. He didn't come in bitterness. He didn't come shaking his fist at Jesus saying, you're a great rabbi, you've healed everybody else, what about my son? He came in worship. Folks, worship is not just singing choruses. Worship is laying down of your life before God. Romans 12 and 1 says, Present your bodies, which in context means your lives, as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that phrase in the Greek language means, which is worship properly understood. Uh, to lay your life down before God is the true meaning of worship. What we do on Sunday morning as we're gathered together and we sing and we pray for one another and so on is the outward expression of what you've been doing from Monday to Saturday with your life. And uh, I'm not going to say don't expect God uh, not to, uh, don't expect God to meet you if you haven't been worshiping with your life Monday to Saturday because God is so gracious, He will anyway. I'm just saying, if you worship God with your life, even if you can't, if you have a tin ear and you can't sing a note, God will meet you on Sunday morning when the congregation is gathered together because you've been laying down your life in worship all week before you ever came into worship. When, when there's a people that have been meeting with God from Monday to Saturday, there's power when they gather on Sunday. Anyway, worship is not just the singing of the choruses, of course, the laying down of our life before God, and, and that's what this man did. Being a worshiper means you have chosen to live by building your life on the rock of Christ, and you're going to trust Him even when things are tough and you've got doubts and fears going on just like this man. So the interesting thing is <clears throat> that Jesus measured this man's faith not by his self-confessed doubts, but by his worship. I, I, I think that God is pleased if we obey. You may obey in a bad frame of mind. You may obey, you know, grumbling a little bit under your breath. You may 
obey in a delayed manner. <laughs> you, you should have done it earlier. But you know what? Just do it. Because God will bless you for obedience. The book of Romans says in chapter 1 at the beginning and chapter 16 at the end, a faith is obedience. Obedience is faith. And so, God will take your obedience, even if it's delayed and even if you grumble a little bit, just do it. That's what worship means. And that's how Jesus measured this man's faith. Jesus could have said, well, you, you, you're saying, you know, if you can. Imagine coming before Jesus saying, if you can. But you see, Jesus measured his faith, not by that, but by the fact that he was down on his knees before him. So, he came in desperate motivation, number one. Number two, he came in worship. And number three, he came in honesty. Before Jesus and everybody else that was there, he admitted his doubts and fears. He wasn't hiding anything. You know what? Honesty is a sign of genuine relationship. Pride, denial, not hiding things under the rug, that's lack of relationship. Honesty is a sign of genuine relationship. I never uh, cease to be amazed at how many people, when you're counseling people over issues of anger, and they're angry at often authority figures in their life. That's why pastors have such a miserable life sometimes. Uh, their anger isn't really against their father or against their pastor or against their school principal or against the police. Their, their anger is against God. He's the ultimate authority figure. But if we're Christians, it's a, you can't admit that you're angry at God. You, you can always find a reason to be angry at the pastor, angry at the principal, angry at the police, angry at your own parents. You can always find a reason because they're imperfect. But you know you can't find a reason to be angry with God, so you don't admit it. David didn't have that problem. He complained to God till the cows came home. Why, how long, oh God, is this sermon going to be? Or whatever, <laughs> right? Well, let me, let me give you a supernatural prophetic revelation. God knows that you're mad with Him. <laughs> it's not a secret. Why not just be honest and bring it? Is that this is the wonderful thing about this father. He was honest with God. He came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I don't know whether you can do anything to help me or not. And on the surface of things, we would say, that's a terrible attitude to come to Jesus with. But Jesus approved of it because he was being honest. And so, be honest with God. And by the way, if you have anger issues in your life, chances are they trace back to disappointment with God. So, other people may have failed you, but the solution is never in blaming other people. It's in getting yourself right with God. And when you get yourself right with God, it's amazing how much patience you have with people because you find out that God had patience with you. Like I always said, like I always say, uh, you, you, you complain because the church isn't perfect. Well, if you find a perfect church, you'll ruin it the minute you walk in the door. So just be honest. Just be honest. Honesty is a sign of relationship. 
Now, the reason the father could be honest with Jesus was actually because he trusted Jesus. In his heart, he knew his honesty would not lead to Jesus rejecting him. Maybe he'd seen the prostitute pouring ointment over Jesus' feet, and he hadn't rejected her. Maybe he'd seen Jesus calling Zacchaeus out of that tree and going to his lunch with all the... going to lunch at his house with all the tax collectors, and Jesus didn't reject any of them. Maybe he'd seen the woman with the issue of blood break the law by touching Jesus, and instead of making Jesus unclean, his cleanness made her whole. Maybe he'd watched how Jesus embraced people in their brokenness, and that gave him courage And so Jesus embraced the man in his honesty and confession of weakness. Don't put up a front. Be honest with God. If you need his help, you need his help. Jesus told us in the Gospels that we need only a kernel of faith. And right here, Jesus looked to bless this man's kernel of faith rather than judging his mountain of doubt. Oh, thank you, Lord. You will bless my kernel of faith instead of judging my mountain of doubt. I've had mountains of doubt. I'm being honest. Anyone in here can be honest as well? But God met me with my kernel of faith when I was in the midst of my mountains of doubt. So, Jesus measured the man's faith by his honesty. He measured the man's faith by his desperation. He measured the man's faith by his worship. And he measured the man's faith by his honesty. And lastly, the man came in trust. His, and this is an interesting point. His trust in Jesus overcame his di- disappointment with people. He didn't walk away from Jesus just because Jesus' disciples had failed him. Now, listen to me. How often do people walk away from the Lord because a Christian or a church has apparently, I say apparently, failed them? Well, churches will always fail you because we're imperfect. But sometimes a lot of people get it way out of proportion right? But people walk away from the Lord just because somebody has failed them who professes to be a Christian or maybe a pastor or a congregation. This man's faith was strong enough to withstand disillusionment with people. If you think people are the answer instead of God, that's an illusion. And if you're disillusioned, it's because you believed in illusion to begin with. But his faith was strong enough to enable him to keep his eyes on Jesus. His trust was in Jesus, not on Jesus' representatives. You are shooting yourself in the foot if you walk away from Jesus because you're angry with his representatives. I, for one, will fail you. I guarantee it. When we had new people come to our church, the first thing I would say to them is, I will fail you someday. I mean... They looked shocked. You're perfect. That's not possible. No, they didn't. But 
That's the first thing I'd say. You know, we walk by grace. Your, your relationship is with Jesus, not me. But I have, do have something to offer you. Church and elders do have something to offer you. And if I had a, all the people uh, that I have seen walk away from the Lord because of their disillusionment with people, it's a long list. But underlying it, where was their trust? If your trust is in Jesus, He'll never disappoint you. And people may fail you. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever failed anybody else? Well, are you glad they were gracious to you? So will you be gracious to someone else? You may walk in and, 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 and Don is busy with someone and, and he doesn't even say hello to you. And you're offended. And you leave and walk out there and that's just done. Too many people are happy to overlook their own imperfections while judging those of others. And then it becomes an excuse to walk away from God. Now, it's true the disciples had failed this man. It's true, right? Imagine the disciples as being, you know, the pastor and the elders. They failed him. He was desperate. They couldn't get the job done. But nowhere in this story does Jesus unload on the disciples for their failure. He just encourages them next time to press deeper. But for the man, he learned the secret of keeping his eyes on Jesus. He stayed in church because he'd come to church for the right reason, which was to meet with Jesus. You will never leave church if you're here to meet with Jesus. If you're here to meet with people, you'll have a problem. But if you're here to meet with Jesus, you won't. Can I suggest to you that what this man had in his relationship uh, or approach in his relationship with Jesus or in his approach to Jesus, and Lisa, if you could just put up those four words to remind people of what, what um, I've been talking about this morning. Can I su suggest to you that these four things, motivation, worship, honesty, and trust, are the hallmarks of genuine biblical faith. Biblical faith, if we understand it properly, is not about a quantity of mental belief. That's not what faith is. Biblical faith is the strength of our personal trust in Jesus and our willingness to build our lives upon that relationship in spite of any doubts we might have in our minds about what Jesus can do for us in any particular situation or challenge that we're facing. True faith shows itself in our character, our attitudes, the way we live. And the dad here did have, he, he did have belief in his mind, otherwise he wouldn't have come to Jesus at all, but, believe, but the belief in his mind was only the product of a deeper trust in his heart. And what was in his heart was enough to drive him to Jesus in spite of his mental doubts. Now, 
The end of the story provides us with one more vital detail. When the disciples came to Jesus asking why they could not cast the demon out, Jesus told them, this kind comes out only by prayer. And the disciples now, they just come off of, if you read the gospel in context, they just come off of some incredible succession successes on a mission trip. That, that just happened. They'd seen people healed. They'd seen demons cast out. Maybe they'd begun to think they were all that in a bucket of chicken. They had what it takes. I'm the man of power for the hour. I got these new shoes this morning. You know, thank you. The reason I got them was because I met with Breno the other night, and, and, he, and he looked at my shoes. He said, Dave, you know, no one's going to get saved Sunday morning with you preaching those shoes. <laughs> you know, it's bad enough. I can't buy any clothes or anything without my wife's permission. Now I not only have to run it past her, I've got to send a photograph to Breno. I know. I want you to know they were at the discount shoe store, though they cost $49.99, so there you go. I'm getting as much anointing out of $49.99 as I can. The next church I go to, I won't admit that's all I paid for them. <laughs> okay, this kind, that, all right, where am I? They just had all these successes. They thought they, they were all that in a bucket of chicken. Okay. Their faith had got disconnected from Jesus because Jesus wasn't there. He was up on the mountain. They had faith in their faith, but faith in your faith isn't enough. And so in disappointment, they come to Jesus saying, why have we failed? And it, his answer was simple. This kind comes out only by prayer. What's he saying? The prayer is some kind of magic ritual? No, he's reminding them that true faith is not born out of positive thinking or of a high estimation of who you are or what you think you can do or how much positive confession you've got going on in your life. No, true faith only ever comes out of a place of communion with Jesus. This kind comes out only by prayer. Same story as I mentioned a few minutes ago, as retold in Matthew chapter 17. And it's interesting that Ma Matthew adds another detail in here to Jesus' answer to, as to why they couldn't do it. He said their failure was also because of their little faith. And then he adds something that seems to be a contradiction. He says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. And the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on earth, the Bible tells us. So, Jesus, what are you saying here? First, he's, he's saying, your problem is with, with, with your small faith. Then the next sentence, he says, you only need small faith to do the impossible. Well, Jesus wasn't, let me give you a prophetic insight, Jesus was not in the habit of contradicting himself. The solution comes out by looking at this little word, small faith. In Greek, it's oligopistian. And what it means is uh, not small faith, but there's another meaning to that word small where it means weak or of poor quality. So that's what it means here. Jesus isn't criticizing their small quantity of faith, but their poor quality of faith. See, if you come to Jesus, like this man did, with desperation, honesty, worship, and trust, 
You can do anything with a small quantity of faith, but you can't do much with a poor quality of faith. A poor quality of faith is not faith without doubts. It's faith without trust. You will have doubts when you come and bring desperate needs before God. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it when everything in your mind is saying, I'm asking God to do this, but I don't think He can do it. The question is, do you have trust? Chances are you'd never have come before God to pray in the first place if you didn't have trust. So you're in a good place. This man had a small quantity of faith, help my unbelief, but he had a great quality, I believe. So we could paraphrase, paraphrase this by saying, the disciples came to Jesus privately and asked, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus replied, because you have such a poor quality of faith. Your faith is weak. For truly I say to you, if you you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, if it's of a good quality, even though it's small, even though your emotions are up and down and your mind is all over the place, if you come like that, nothing will be impossible for you. Now that puts all of us here this morning in a great place to come to God. The disciples that had, maybe they'd had a great mission trip, but it had taken them away from fellowship with Jesus. They'd forgotten Jesus' secret did not lie in his ability to conduct miracles through some kind of mind over matter. The secret of Jesus' power that enabled him to perform miracles and that enabled him to go to the cross to die came from one place only, the time he spent with his Father. That's where the power is. That's what will generate life in you. Real faith draws us back to our relationship with Jesus. As you cast yourself upon Him in trust, as you seek to maintain a depth of relationship with Him, you can be just like Peter was that day on the, on the Sea of Galilee. In spite of what his mind must have been telling him, he stepped out of the boat. We criticized Peter, but notice the others didn't even step out of the boat. But the Scripture tells us that it was when he began to take his eyes off Jesus and disconnect with Jesus that he began to sink. And if Jesus hadn't reached out and grabbed him, he would have been lost. But Jesus saw his trust. Peter had doubts. How am I going to do this? I can't do this. But he'd stepped out of the boat because he had trust in Jesus. And in the storms of life, he'll rescue you and me too. I I can identify with this story as... Maybe some of you can too. Maybe there's some desperate fathers in this room or desperate mothers. Now, I can remember the day that our daughter came and collapsed in our arms after the doctor had called her saying she had cancer. I remember being in another country taking a phone call saying to the doctor in the hospital, do, I, do we need to find the next flight home? We've had moments of desperation. You, you don't, don't think that just because you're uh, a spiritual leader, preacher, whatever it is I am, uh, that we just float above the clouds and never have a crisis in our life or in our family. Actually, sometimes you get more crisis, crises 
because you're serving God. So I, 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 I'm preaching to myself this morning. I'm the desperate dad. So I, I don't, I'm not calling you guys out. Uh, I'll, I'll say it's me. You, you can just listen in to me preaching to myself this morning because I admit to all of this. But the great thing about this story is all that I need is a small amount of faith. But as long as my faith is rooted in a relationship with Jesus, then any of us, including me, can do the impossible. What's the impossible? It may, may be to see a miracle. Maybe it's just to persevere in an incredibly different, different, difficult situation and still remain faithful. Keep on trusting God through the darkness till the light dawns. Because it will. There's an end to every valley. So the desperate father should be an encouragement to every last one of us, no matter what our situation is, what our age is, or anything else. You don't have to be a superhero of faith for God to meet you. You just have to be faithful. That's it. You just have to be faithful. And that is a possibility for every last one of us who believe in spite of our unbelief. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, I want to ask, as the worship team comes up, <coughs> I want to ask you to stand with me and take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Maybe He's been speaking to you already while I've been sharing this story. And if you're desperate about something this morning, don't be embarrassed. Let your desperation drive you to God. And that means coming up to the front here and kneeling down, just like the desperate dad knelt down. Then come and do it. But let God speak to you. Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. And so, as the worship team, I don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to lead us in a song of some sort. Respond to the Holy Spirit and to what He's speaking to you. You want to come up to the front, come up to the front. If you want to stay in your seat, that's fine, doesn't matter. But just allow God to speak to you and bring you encouragement out of this word this morning. Because if He can meet the desperate, if He met the desperate Father, and He can meet me, He can meet you too. God meets His people at the screaming point. He won't forget you.